Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Acts 3, verses 11 to 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord, will, Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay, so, let me start with a guy named Bill Willingham. Bill Willingham is a a writer, and he writes specifically uh, graphic novels, graphic meaning comics, not graphic. Um, I have to say that. I don't know if people know what graphic novels are. And uh, he wrote many things, but one of the series he wrote specifically is called Fables. And in this, this one called uh, Cubs in Toyland, one of his characters says this, Murderers don't get forgiven just because we promise to be good from now on. We have to earn our way back. 100 is the price. 100 lives for each we took. That seems fair. That's how we get whole again. And that's our work from now until as long as it takes. And this idea is pretty common in Canada. Most Canadians uh, who are not Christians, and certainly some who are, sadly, believe that if there is to be forgiveness, it must be earned. It has to be atoned for. It can't just be granted. That's just, it's unjust, we would think. And there's a lot of problems with that view, with what Willingham writes there. And I can only name a few at the moment, but one of them is, who sets the debt? What debt is it? Are, have you paid for your sins? If you've murdered somebody, robbed somebody, lied, cheated, betrayed, what's the, who sets the penalty? Is it the law? 
And if you have paid the legal price, then is the victim obliged to forgive you? Does that mean you have forgiveness? Or what if we let the victims determine what the price is? Then will you ever pay the price? If you've had a child taken from you, for instance, as an example, what price is enough? What price is enough? And of course, depending on how big that debt is that you owe, then your entire life is actually forfeit, not just your past, because you're always going to be trying to redeem the past. But if the price is so high that you cannot pay it, your whole life is ruined, and this is why. Your past has to be paid for, and that happens in the present. So your present is wrapped up in your past trying to pay for it, but because you can never pay for the debt, because there's always going to be guilt, there's always going to be something, your entire future is forfeit. You will pay until you die, and if you have a certain worldview, you may pay after you die. There may be purgatory, there may be hell, whatever your worldview is. And so, if it's left up to you to determine how to pay for your debt, who says? How much? How long? What peace is there? And the reason, how can you escape, right? How can you escape that debt? And the reason I bring that up here is when you look at the story about Peter and, the, and what he's saying here, he, is just, he and John have just mediated a healing. Okay? They've healed this man, and all the crowds start to follow him. And for the second time already in just three chapters, Peter realizes that the crowds are again in danger of misunderstanding the miracle. The first time they did on Pentecost, and now another time, because they understandably see a miracle. And if you see somebody get healed, that's pretty... Like, that's it's incredible. And they're in awe of it. But Peter knows that they're in danger of missing something because they're in danger of worshiping the sign rather than what the sign points to. And just to illustrate how stupid that is, <laughs> how, how, but how common it is, and we can understand it, but how, how silly it is, is imagine you're going to take your kids to Disney World. You're going to drive there from Niagara Falls to Florida. And then uh, when you get to Charlotte, North Carolina, you see a sign, and it's a beautiful sign. But it's a sign that says Disney World, 500 miles away. I checked. That's how far it is from Charlotte, roughly. And you see it, and you say, kids, we're here. And you get out at the sign, and you set up shop, and you celebrate Disney World at the sign. Now, your kids would be a little bit disappointed, though it's way cheaper. That is the way pastors celebrate Disney World. <laughs> but that would not only be disappointing, but you'd actually be a little insane, wouldn't you? People driving by are like, what are those Canadians doing? They would be wondering what's happening. And so, when we get enamored with the miracle here, and Christians do it, preachers do it, we get so focused on the miracle that we spend our time, instead of looking at what the sign points to and getting to the, to the destination rather than the sign, we instead start talking and debating about who's healing who, where's it coming from? And that's what the crowds want, right? They're coming and they're saying, hey, how'd you, how'd you do that? How do I get in on that? Because I got this sciatica, you know, I would love to get it healed. And they have real needs. There's real pain in the world, real suffering. But what Peter does in his sermon is he says, you're missing the point. The question isn't, how do you do this? The question is, what does it mean? What is this sign pointing to? What, is this, what does the healing say for what God is doing in the world? Because if you understand what he is doing, you begin to realize that it promises something far greater than healing your rheumatism. Far greater. And that's what Peter is doing. And there's so much here. Again, community groups, you'll have to spend more time, and I'll lead you through some of those discussions about healing and things. But today, instead, we're going to look at this question. Peter realizes something. You have a problem, and the problem is you have a debt you can't pay. And this sign shows that God has done something about that debt, and that there is now an opportunity to escape it, and there is freedom. And there is specifically freedom from the past, 
freedom in the present and freedom for the future. And that's what the gospel does. And this is why Peter announces it. He says, I know that the miracle's cool, but take your eyes back for a second and see what it be. It's a bigger situation. And you know you're a Christian who's really focused on the healing if we read a lot of books about healing. And you're really concerned and understandably about your suffering and the suffering of the world. And all you want to do is, how do I get that power to fix it? I don't want to ever see another person hurt. I don't want to see my family hurt. I don't want to have to suffer the way I am. And so we really dwell on the healing rather than the healer. Because when you understand what Peter is talking about, you're actually going to have the ability to rejoice amidst the pain and suffering. It's not going to take it away necessarily, but it will give you hope and strength through it. And this is what Peter, one of the things Peter is getting at. So let's walk through that. So first thing he announces here is it gives us freedom from the past. And I'm going to spend some time today with Russians. Uh, Russian literature, I once asked a professor, how come there's no great Russian philosophers? Because there was no great, they're all Germans and French. And he said, because the Russians wrote their philosophy into novels. And he's right. And if you've ever read Russian novels, they're they're dreary, they're grim, because Russia is a nation that has suffered terribly. And as a result, they have really profound but hard-to-read books. They're like drudgery to read, because they last forever and it never gets happy. And yet they're quite profound. And one of the one of the many guys is a guy named Anton Chekhov. And Chekhov is a playwright, and he wrote a book called The Cherry Orchard. And lots happens in the story. Uh, specifically, it's about a woman who has lost a son, and she has a great deal of debt, and she goes back home to Russia from Paris to deal with her family's estate and everything. And in it, at one point, one of the a servant, a student, says this: "We just philosophize, complain of boredom, or drink vodka." So it's so clear, you see, that if we are to begin living in the present, we must first of all redeem our past and then be done with it forever. And the only way we can redeem our past is by suffering and by giving ourselves over to exceptional labor, to steadfast and endless labor. That's profound because he's right. If we are responsible for making up for our past sins, then prepare for a lifetime and an eternity of endless labor. You're going to have to keep doing it. And one of the things he also notices here, and it's reminded me of something else, actually. It reminded me this week of art, this art installation I'd once seen. I was able to find pictures of it, of a guy named uh, Urs Fischer. He's a Swiss artist, and he, he made these pieces of art called Rotten Foundations. And it has, he built walls on top of old produce. And every few weeks, he would come and replace it with new produce. And what he was trying to do was he's saying, he's of course challenging materialism, right? He's saying, if you build anything in this world on material, it's going to crumble because everything you build on erodes. So he's trying to show the the futility of being Canada, basically, of saying, I'm going to build my life on my health. It's going to erode. Your bank account, it's going to disappear. Your family, they're going to leave you. All of it's going to go. It's a bit bit fatalistic, sure. But he makes a point, just like Chekhov, that if you and I are going to build a life on something, build an identity on something, it had better be something that has solid foundations that can't erode. And so Peter understands in the sermon that before he tells the crowds that you have to build your life on Jesus, he needs to show them that they've built it on rotten foundations first. Because otherwise they'll never accept it. If you're not a Christian here, if you're a skeptic, or if you're a young person who's really drinking too much of the cultural Kool-Aid, you're going to think that Jesus is, we tried that. Why would we build on this invisible God in the sky? Instead, let me build on the things I can feel and touch. 
And every Russian philosopher and most other intelligent ones are telling you the same thing. You're wrong. Don't build on something that can be taken away from you. And so Peter does this on purpose. He intentionally says to them in two things. He says, first he starts by saying, your foundations are rotten. You as a people, Israel, and you humans, we have all got rotten past. But it's not all he says. He then says, but God has done something about it. So the first thing he says is this idea of the rotten past. He says, you know, it's worse than you imagine. And he starts by doing something skeptics hate. And I understand it, but let me explain it. He says to the crowd, this crowd, remember, this crowd wasn't there when Jesus was crucified, probably. Certainly not all of them. They weren't the ones who were yelling in the crowd to kill him. They weren't the ones who drove the nails into his hands directly. And yet Peter implicates them. He says, even though you weren't there, you're to blame. And look at what he says in verses uh, 13 to 15. Jesus, whom you delivered over, over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the Holy One, the Holy and Righteous One, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. So there's something Peter's saying. He is saying that even though, listen, if it's not only that generation, that although they weren't there, are still culpable for the death of Christ, he's, it means you and I are arguably culpable. But how is that possible? I don't know who the youngest person is in the room, but they're culpable. I remember my old Victor Shepherd, the prof I had preach here a few months back, he once told me, Santos, when I see a newborn baby, the only thing I know for certain about that baby is he's going to turn his face against God. That's all I know. Uh, a little grim, but he's <laughs> maybe it's not what you say right at the wedding, you know. Oh, look at this little sinner. Um, <laughs> you know, if it was Christmas, you're all on the naughty list, right? That's the idea. But he's, he's technically right <laughs> there. And what Peter, what, he, what Peter is saying is this, and he's 100% right. You have all killed Christ. Let me explain. The gospel is very simple. Jesus died for your sins. He died for not just the sins in the past that were committed, or the present ones that are being committed, but all the future sins. If he then died for all the sins humanity would ever, ever, ever commit, then your sin of negligence, of swearing, of whatever, pick of the sin, I don't care, makes you culpable in his death because he had to die for your sins. Therefore, Peter can justly say, you're responsible. You delivered him. You killed him. And it's harsh. It may sound harsh, but it's really not. Because what it means is you and I have offended a holy and infinite and perfect God. And people say, but Carl, is it fair that for a finite, a little sin, that I would be eternally condemned? That's an unjust God. No, it's not. And it's not only is it not unjust, but you do it all the time. And I've used this example before. That if I slap, well, I don't know. Who should I slap today? I don't know. I'll, pick up, I'll make up a name. No, I shouldn't because there's probably somebody here with that name. Let's say I slap some, one of you in the face. I just smack you in the face. What will, I, what will be my punishment? Well, I'll probably be smacked back, maybe. Maybe a couple of ushers would jump on me, right? But there would be, that would be it. If I go outside, however, and I smack a police officer, what will happen? I'll be beaten up. If there's a camera, I'll only be beaten up. If there's no camera, who knows? <laughs> no, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. <laughs> Scrap that from the YouTube, all right? Um, but, but something I'll, be, I'll get restrained, and I'll probably put in jail. But if I now go over to Jordan, and I smack the king of Jordan, what will happen to me? I'm killed. I'm dead. Now, 
We understand this because we as humans know that the crime isn't the problem, it's the one offended that's the problem. And therefore, the punishment fits the offended. Simple. Now, logically speaking, if your life is forfeit for smacking another human that we think should wear the pants in the family, why are we raging against the fact that an infinite God who is offended demands infinite restoration? Why? It's because you just don't want to believe it. Because you don't want to admit you're guilty. You don't want to admit that there's justice in the world. And I get it. But Peter doesn't have a problem telling them you're guilty and you deserve to die. Harsh, maybe. But then it's not the end. Peter doesn't just say that. He uses these wonderful words in the sermon and says, all the while you were conspiring and killing God, he was at work dying for you. Because the language is so rich, I think you'll see it if you read it carefully. When he starts by saying, he does something unique. He starts and he doesn't say God did or the father of Jesus did. Instead, he says the father of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he does that, what he is doing is he is saying this ancient God, this God from the beginning, has been planning from the beginning your restoration, that he anticipated your sin. He knew your stupidity and mine, and he not only saves you in spite of your sin, but he actually saves you through your sin. Because while you were sinning and killing him, he was using that very sin to save you. And, and so Peter says something that is remarkable. He says, as a result, because God turned your sin into your salvation, doesn't glorify your sin, but instead it shows us, puts a spotlight on God and says, he does not erase your past, he redeems it. See, we want to erase the past. Pretend like it doesn't exist. Scrub it out. Let's pull down the statues of the men and women from hundreds of years ago who have said something offensive. Erase the past. Then it wouldn't have happened. Come on. Child's play. It's child's play. God instead comes and says, there's only one way. If you redeem the past. And so, the way forward is not to do better from now on. That's not the only way forward. It's not enough. The way forward is not to just atone for your sin. Because you can't. The only way forward is that the person who's wronged absorbs the wrong. That's the way forward, says Peter. So that's the first thing. He says, God has redeemed your past. Now, but into that now, he's not just redeemed you from your past by turning it. And I'm going to show in the last point how that happens, how the wounds you have can actually be beautiful. I'll explain that. We'll get there. The second thing he says is that God say, uh, redeems us and the gospel redeems us and frees us from, uh, in our present. And now, there's lots of ways humans have tried to escape their past, right? We've tried to forget it, we've tried to drug ourselves, all sorts of things. And one of the more popular ones today that people don't really necessarily call it this, but uh, those nerds like us who have seen it can see it, is we, and it's been happening forever, is, is we've, tried, we've become Epicureans. Now, Epicurus was this Greek philosopher from the 3rd and 4th and 3rd century BC. And if you've heard the word Epicurean, you, you know what this means. And he basically, not basically, he said a lot of very interesting and comical things. But one of the things he said was, pleasure is the beginning and end of the blessed life. And he believed this. The whole purpose of life is just to enjoy yourself. Just have fun. Just enjoy. Drink full. The, the world's a buffet. You know, just enjoy it. And he said, you know, but the problem is, although that's the purpose of life, it's impossible to do because there's all these anxieties in the world. The world is such a downer. And so what you have to do is you have to free yourself from that. And the way to free yourself from that, he said, is basically two problems with us. He said the first one is we can't stand the idea of dying. It looms out there. 
as this end of things. And part of that is also not just dying, but we're afraid of eternal punishment or reward. And so if we simply pretended or just rejected the idea that there's a God and an afterlife, then we could just live for now. And we'd have fun and be good, just enjoy pleasure, uh, uh, politics, avoid it, he said. Marriage, eh, if it makes you happy. Sex, by all means. Food, certainly. Friends, good, if they're, if they're good friends. The problem, of course, is Hitler thought he was having, pursuing good pleasure. So whose pleasure do we seek? But the, nonetheless, this idea is very common here in Canada. And what's interesting about Epicurus and people who are, would call themselves Epicureans today is they'll say, but listen, by, um, by removing God, by removing the eternal, then it's actually more significant. Our lives become more significant because now I don't have an eternity. I only have 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years. And because I have only this much time, it makes my decisions more meaningful. Sounds smart. It's dumb. This is why. Because if there is no reward and no punishment, then your, meaning, your actions today mean nothing. Nothing. Because it doesn't matter if you're a good person or you're a sinner, a murderer, a rapist, or a saint. It doesn't matter. Because there's no punishment, no reward. And we use Hitler as an example all the time. You know, Hitler's going to die just like Mother Teresa, and there'll be no punishment and no judgment for them. So, if that's the case, drink full, have a great life if you'd like, but understand it is meaningless. It's meaningless. And we preach Ecclesiastes in the year, you're going to see that too. And so, what Peter then comes to do in his sermon is he says very clearly, no, no, there is a God. And because he has redeemed your past, your meaning, the only way to have meaning in your present that your actions actually have significance, not just present, but eternal significance, is if there is a God. And he says, and there is that. And he uses these list language. He says, because you've been freed, because God has paid for your past, your job now, the right response is repent. You are now free presently to repent. You can do that. And when he says repent, he uses two wonderful words. He could just use one. It's easier in Hebrew, because Hebrew is one word that's more all-encompassing, shuv. But in Greek, he uses two. He says, one, repent, and then he says, and turn back. And the emphasis seems to be, one is more mental and emotional, one is more physical. So in repent, he's saying, change your mind, literally what the Greek means. Change your mind. Start, stop thinking the way you do. Stop thinking that God is below your passions or your interests. Stop seeking one thing with your heart and mind, and start seeking another, God. But then when he says turn back, he's also saying, but you also need to start living accordingly. That's what repentance is. And you can now do that because your past has been forgiven. You don't have to atone for your past. Now you're asked to repent in response to being forgiven, not to be forgiven. See? And this is incredible, what he's saying. And so, and then he says, you know, and, they haven't, and now your decisions mean something. See, when you repent now, or you reject Jesus, it's not just, you know, some people say, I'm not a Christian, why not? Well, I just don't need him. I, I don't feel I need him. I have no felt need, everything's going well, I have an identity I've crafted for myself, I just don't need him. And, what, and so we think of Jesus as an option, you know, it's orange juice with pulp or without, you can just choose him, you know? And that's just not the way the world is, it's not the way scriptures, it's not the way we live. And Peter's saying, your choices now have purpose. If you repent, then you are, there's benefits that come. And he says plainly, first, your sins will be blotted out, meaning it has eternal consequences. You can now live forever with God. There's hope. There's an eternity of peace, of joy, of all those things you've longed for, which we'll cover at the end. But then he says there's also present 
impact. It's not just delaying gratification for later. He says plainly, if you repent, times of refreshing may come. And when he says this, what he say, it's the word for Greek that means a lot of things. It's a, it's a rich word, but it, one of them is to take a deep breath. <sighs> like you can finally rest. That you can experience some form of relief from the anxiety and life that you've been living. And not just that, he then says, but you're, you're, you're heirs to this blessing. And the, the blessing, of course, is not just that you will be saved, but that you will then become a blessing to others, so that you then become a vessel of refreshing for others. And so it's no longer the Epicurean idea of live for yourself. It's now, no, no, part of living is living for others as well. It's a radically different approach. And Peter's saying this is the only possible because of what Christ has done with your past, because he's paid for it. He says, but it's not the only option. You could also reject him. We have, we have that. And we all will, unless God intervenes. And so he says, but, and he quotes uh, Deuteronomy 18. And he says, you know, one, Moses said that one day another prophet would come. And he, and he, a greater prophet, one like Moses, and you have to believe him and say every, do everything he says or else destruction. Okay, pretty harsh. And when he says this, he's, he's picking up on, well, the Jews didn't always see this as a messianic verse. At first they thought it would be a prophet would actually come, but they just didn't find one. No one ever got named this other prophet. And eventually it comes, becomes messianic. And Peter grabs it and says, he's talking about Jesus here. And if you don't choose him, your decisions have significance. The, 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 the response is destruction. And I know people, you know, I have people often say, but isn't that harsh? No, it's actually exactly what you want. All I, uh, when I speak to so many people, no matter how we disagree on our worldviews, one thing is certain, they want their lives to have meaning. Well, congratulations, they do, it does. It does have meaning. You want your, uh, your decisions to be important, to make a difference. Well, they do make a difference. They do matter. Every decision you make matters. You want to live forever in peace. You can. And then the other, you want to see justice for victims. There is. And so I understand that it seems harsh and people can understandably say, but isn't it unjust? It may seem, God's justice may seem unjust to you, but that's exactly what you should think if you've been raised in a world that showed you a very different form of justice. It's right that you balk and you buck against God's justice, because it's so foreign, because you and I don't really want justice. We want it. We say we want it, but then we find out we're on the wrong sides of it, and we're like, okay, maybe not real justice, like partial justice. Can I choose the justice? And so we actually have exactly what we want. Peter says, because you're freed from your past, you are now free in the present, and that freedom means responsibility. You can choose Christ, or you can run from him. That's a choice. Now, we get to the last part. He frees, uh, frees us for hope for the future. Now, how can he do this? Now, this is a fair question I get very regularly. How is it that God can take horrible pasts? Some of us, and maybe in the room, people we know, people we've read about, they've not just suffered a little. They've suffered terrible lives. They've suffered from the cradle to the grave. Miserable, miserable, hard lives. And I can understand when, a, when someone comes and says, how is it? fair that God would allow, and in some cases bring, this evil to people, all and then say, but I'm doing it, but don't worry, I'm going to make it better at the end. How is that just? How is it just to hit? Like, would it be right for you to go to your child and hurt them and say, it's for your own good? It seems odd, and I understand it does. But Peter responds to it. So I'm going to try to show, not show, I'm going to show how Peter responds to it here, but then also how other 
respond to it. So the first thing to consider is what Peter says in verse 20 and 21. Repent, he says, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. Now what he is saying is very simple. Right now you can experience some refreshment as Christians. We experience joy and peace to an extent. But the fullness of restoration will not come until Christ returns. This is why I will poke against health and wealth preachers. Because the assumption is I should be able to pull down the full restoration now. I understand that desire. That's what the crowds are trying to do. But Peter again rebukes them and says that's just not the way it is. Full restoration, full health will come when Christ returns. We don't have that luxury at the moment. And so he says that, but then notice what he says. He says, until the time for restoring all things. Restoring. And then in Revelation 21, 5, remember that wonderful part? Behold, I am making all things new. Notice what he doesn't say. Behold, I am making all new things. He doesn't say, I'm going to take this world that is so riddled with sin and misery, and I'm going to crush it and destroy it. It's going to be gone, 100% gone. And I'm going to make the world right the way it should have been, all by myself. No help from you, thank you. If that was the case, we would hear him not talk about restoring, because you can't restore something that isn't already there. If you're restoring a car, it's still the car there. It's been marred, it's been defaced, it's ugly, it needs repairs, but it's still there to be restored. And when God says time and again, he's going to restore all things, he's saying, I'm going to take the brokenness of your life and of your past, and some of you have experienced this in your lives, I'm going to take all of that ugliness and I'm going to make it new. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to mend it somehow. And how does he do that? I'll say there's two reasons why I believe this 100% to be true, and I'll try to explain it here at the close. And I'm going to use two different examples. One is an example of something, and one is from a, a story. The first one is, I believe this by faith. And this is why I believe it. There's this wonderful book, uh, and I've mentioned it probably to you before, uh, called The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, another Russian. And in it, I mean, it's a very long book, very dreary book, but there's brothers, three brothers, and uh, Ivan, Dmitri, and Alyosha. Now, at one point, Alyosha, who is a, a Christian, who is in a bar with his friend, his brother, Dmitri, who is a very sensual guy. This is live for the moment. He's a womanizer. He's a drinker. And they're having a heart-to-heart conversation. And Dmitri realizes that his Christian brother probably thinks, looks down on him and thinks that he's just this base, you know, base pagan. And his, he's, he asks, you want to know what I believe? He says to, to the Christian, here's what I believe. And this is what he says. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, and that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Now here's Dostoevsky speaking through a pagan character. He doesn't know why he believes it. I can't say with certainty as far as having seen the end. I haven't seen the end. I've only know what God has showed me scripturally. But what he shows me is sufficient to know that whatever comes at the end is going to be better because of the suffering. 
And the reason I know that is because of the cross. And I'm using an example now to show that in our lives about how the cross shows this. And it's the art of Japanese art called kintsugi. And kintsugi is this art of taking broken bits of pottery and putting them back together. And so when they're broken, but they don't just put it back together, they put it together with golden adhesive or glue, usually, almost always gold. And the beautiful thing about this is that the broken pottery becomes more beautiful because it was broken. And the very scars of the pottery become the showpiece of the beauty of the pottery. And so this cup was just a plain old white cup. These are just plain old implements until they're broken and they're put back together by the master craftsman. And now, when we see in Scripture that Christ, when he comes and he's resurrected and he shows up to Thomas, he says, touch my wounds. We hear when he, sees, when he appears to Paul in Acts 9 that he is yet suffering. Why do you persecute me? So Christ is yet persecuted in heaven. He yet suffers in heaven. He will return triumphant, free from suffering, but so long as his church suffers, he suffers. I don't know this for certain, but I am almost positive he will be scarred for eternity. Not wounded, not hurting, but scarred. And the reason is, when we see the scars on Christ, we see him to be beautiful. Because it's a very brokenness for us that makes him beautiful to us. And he is not uglier because of it. He would, we wouldn't dare say, oh, did it really have to come to all that? Instead, we say, thank you. At the time, we didn't understand why the brokenness was happening. And I don't know why people suffer. I don't know it. But I do know what he showed us in Christ. That because of the suffering, we were healed. And he was beautiful before, but he's infinitely beautiful when he has showed himself to be a sacrifice for unworthy people. And so, if you're a Christian, you are God's kintsugi. You've been put together. Have you noticed how it's your very brokenness that God will use to heal others? It's the one who has recovered from alcoholism who then works with alcoholics. It's the one who's been divorced who works with divorced people. It's the one who has suffered cancer who meets with cancer victims and people going through it. It's because God takes your brokenness and makes things new from it. He doesn't say, I'm going to, make it, I'm going to give you a pill. You're going to forget your divorce. You're going to forget your chemotherapy. No. He instead says, I'm going to turn it into something beautiful and something restorative. The world looks and says, suffering has no purpose. It's worthless. I have to get away from it as fast as I can. God says, suffering is not pointless because if it was, he wouldn't have died. He redeemed suffering on the cross. And so we can suffer differently now. And so you see now why Peter is like, guys, why are you just looking at this man walking? You're worried about standing up and getting more food for today. The gospel is so much more than that. And so if that's your Christian, if you're a skeptic, you're broken. It's okay, but turn to the only one who can fix you. The only one who can take that past and help you understand partly why it happened, but certainly make something good from the ruins of it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you. Thank you, Father, for the cross. Thank you for um, that you are this God that mends things. And uh, yesterday at that wedding, I told the story of that African child who said to asked her mom why what God does all day. And the mother wisely said, he mends broken things. And Lord, you've, that's what you do. Since creation, you've been mending broken things. Since we fell, you've set about the work of mending this world. And you ultimately mended it at the cost of your own life. And that is um, foolishness to the Greeks. The world can't understand it. To the world, the cross is barbaric. It's uh, cosmic, it's child abuse. 
But to those who, have, who, you've, who you've come to, those who you've seen, those whose hearts you've opened, ears you've opened like Lydia's, Father, those of us who for whatever reason see you, we see not, not brutality, but beyond the brutality, we see the scars that, are, that were for our healing. And we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. To, help us to embrace it and help us to become wounded healers, Father. Healed, wounded people that go out and bring healing to the world, that calls the world to repentance, that calls the world to proper restoration. Let us be agents of restoration. Let us hold people accountable. Let's pull them away from the distractions of, of all these things in the world and even the things of religion. Let us draw them to the perp, to the real thing that you point to, which is grace, healing. But it all starts, Lord, with um, the healing of, the, of our relationship with you. Lord, there's no healing that can happen on foundations of sin. So we thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you fixed and solved that biggest problem that we could never, that you crossed that chasm we could never cross. Father, we love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' great name. Amen.